Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, welcome to the podcast. Today, it's my great pleasure to have on the show, Tim Reister. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, Jeremy. I like the way you say, hey, salespeople. So I just wanted to say, hey, Jeremy. Uh, I like it. No one is, I don't think anyone's done that yet. So I, I totally appreciate that. For those who have not come across Tim and his great content, uh, Tim is Chief Strategy Officer at Corporate Visions, and Corporate Visions is a marketing and sales consulting and training company. Today, we're going to talk about a recent highly data-driven, which floats my boat, study that Tim did on sales engagement personalization. Before we do that, I'm going to ask Tim my trademark question I like to ask at the beginning, which is, what's your favorite sales or sales leadership book of all time? And, And let's talk about that a bit. Nobel Prize winning economist Daniel Kahneman wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. And him and Amos Tversky did a ton of research in the decision sciences about the invisible forces that shape human decision making. And I think a lot of people sort of think in B2B, which is where I reside, that we're apparently no longer humans and not affected by those human decision making issues. But the truth is, you're still selling to humans and all of these things are in play. So the neuroscience, the behavioral economics, the social psychology that goes into a decision is super important for sellers and marketers and B2B. So to me, that's a fundamental book for everyone. I know there's a lot of decision heuristics and decision rules and and so on in that book. Are there any that stand out to you as being things that are, are fundamentally important to salespeople to either watch out for on the receiving side or to be able to use, obviously, for good, not for evil on the selling side? If I look at decision science in general, heuristics being a shortcut that people use, there's really four little shortcuts people use, but the scientists have rolled them up into one big idea called status quo bias. And that's the problem. Like when you're a seller trying to convince somebody to change, their status quo bias is your enemy. But if you don't know what causes it, you don't know how to defeat it. Real quickly, one of those heuristics is preference stability. People like to keep current preferences stable. So you need to actually destabilize their preferences. Another one is um, anticipated regret and blame. Humans will project that if they stick their neck out to make a change, they're taking a risk that uh, they'll get the blame for. And you have to defeat that with really well-placed proof stories. Another one is the idea of selection difficulty. Humans are overwhelmed very quickly. And the decision-making part of the brain is overwhelmed with the amount of information. We've heard it called paralysis by analysis. You must show very clear contrast. It's called the contrast effect, helping them see contrast or they won't believe there's enough value to make the change. And the final one is the perceived cost of change. Everybody believes that the change costs and the status quo is free. So you must show that there's a cost to staying the same. So there's like four little causes of status quo bias, which are sort of default modes for humans in all decision. And your job is essentially not to be a seller, but to be a change agent. You have to understand status quo bias and what you need to do to defeat it in order to initiate change. And this is true if you're managing people, if you're running a company, you're selling something or raising children or having a happy marriage. On the anticipated regret, I love the tips that you gave about proof stories as a mechanism to help overcome that. I think also the building consensus amongst the buyers. So it's not like any one person necessarily feels like they made the decision, although someone obviously signs the check in the end, but uh, the consensus building, I do think helps handle the anticipated regret as well. 
Absolutely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Probably part of the reason that consensus building is now the phenomenon that it is in decision-making is consensus is always a better tool for a successful adoption because now you've got more skin in the game, which is like that last holdout in decisions. And they won't tell you that. I mean, the last thing they're going to do is admit to that, but assume it to be true. Well, let's transition over to the main topic of the day, which is this incredible study that I came across that you guys had done on, on personalization. So where do you want to start on that? We've done a, a couple of studies on personalization because it's such a hot topic. And sometimes I'm afraid in, in marketing and sales that there's um, a lot of what we like to call anecdata, where people have strong opinions and have anecdotal experiences and then portray those as science. We like to go in a little harder than that and make sure that we all know that this is for real or played out in some sort of um, quantifiable and rigorous way. One of the things we looked at was this idea that people think of personalization as sort of um, a ladder to climb or a hierarchy to go up, and that the ultimate nirvana is to be speaking to the individual you're targeting and speaking to them personally about things that are personally attached to them. In all of our research, people in industry say that's where we should be with personalization. And the thing that they believe is less effective is the idea of just using industry personalization, bringing an insight from the industry and being able to compare the person you're talking to's company and compare them to others in the industry. And in between personal personalization and industry personalization is company personalization. The idea that you do some research on the company, you identify some things in the press releases or in the news and say, hey, we realize or see you're engaging this and all that to get people drawn into your message, right? So the idea of personalization is to get them to process the message a little harder and to engage it a little more and go a little further with you because it seems tailored to them. But what we found out is we did um, a controlled field study with uh, 7,000 emails uh, sent to cold prospects. So imagine these are stone cold prospects, never heard from this company before, and they meet the ideal client profile, both in terms of the size of the company, the segment they're in, and the titles that we're targeting. And we divide them into groups. One group we're targeting where we are sending them a message that introduces a problem and a solution. And the opening statement is all oriented around the problem teed up as an industry problem that others like them, other companies like you are struggling with this. And here's what they're dealing with. And we'd like to tell you more about it. Let's say um, the segment is the banking industry, right? And this is really important. And other banks like you have discovered that the underlying problem has more to do with a human issue versus a technology issue, right? Like you, you introduce some need they might not have thought of, but you introduce it as something you've spotted because of your experience in the industry. So that's what it means to show open with like an industry insight. The company insight would be, hey, ABC Bank, we noticed in your annual report that you've talked about wanting to have improve your mobile app and the singular view of the customer and your ability to connect them to all of the important data. So it would be the same business problem, but it's the angle taken where we try to find a company-specific bit of information that we can tie to the problem. 
So instead of it being about others in your industry, now it's something you're doing that we wanted to tie to the problem we're going to attempt to solve. And then the personal contact would be, hey, Jeremy, in your role as the vice president of customer success at ABC Bank, we know that you are probably looking at how to create a more singular experience, et cetera, et cetera. So we are very personal and talking about you and your role. In the company case, we're trying to find something out there in the information world that connects the company to the problem. And the third is connecting the industry to the problem. I guess on the personal side, I would have thought like personal would be you looked on my LinkedIn profile and you saw what school I attended, or you looked at my LinkedIn profile and you saw some achievement or social cause that I'm dedicated to. It sounds like your personal personalization, I would almost describe as role personalization. What we tried to control in this study was the business problem setup and the solution were all going to be the same. So we needed an angle to get into the business problem. And so it was very personal. We know who you are. We know what job you have. We instructed these people who were doing in the test. If they found something additionally personal that made sense, then we would allow them to use it. But here's the problem. If you notice what school they go to and you write that, but you have no affiliation with that school, you just bring it up. That's just sort of creepy. We wanted it to be sort of like a fair test, like something that was connected to them in a way that showed we were talking to them personally, but yet we didn't want to go off the creepy Richter scale, right? Because otherwise we think that's too obvious. I would actually think as you described that the company personalization would be the most effective simply because when I get a email from somebody or someone's engaged me in a cadence and they do something that shows me that they took the time to engage me, I'm far more likely to read. I may or may not respond, but I'm far more likely to read. So I'm probably statistically more likely to respond. And as you described it, the company research said, hey, they read a 10K or a 10Q or read an earnings presentation, and they figured out what critical initiatives our C-level executives at ABC Bank were after. I would think that would have the highest yield, but don't spoil it for me yet. I'd love to find out if I'm right or wrong. So the question is, do you want to know what the best performer was in terms of open rates, click-throughs, or meetings scheduled? Because that's how we did the study. See, this is the deal. I feel like we got to make sure we're measuring the thing that matters and able to measure it in a controlled way so we know that it matters. When you look at average open rates, or do you have a favorite of those three? Of the things you mentioned, open, click, or meeting scheduled, I could care less about open rates and click rates, and meeting scheduled would be the one that mattered the most to me. Yeah, I mean, and it should, because we could work with the team that was calling and qualifying to the meeting, and we could make sure they were evenly distributed from you know high, medium, low performers. Once it got handed to a salesperson, it's kind of like the controls were off the study. You know, how do you control for the salespeople that got the lead and, and how good the salesperson is? We could control for the outbound opportunity managers, if that makes sense. So that's why we sort of stopped at meeting schedule, because that's where we knew for a fact that we had control over the controls in the study. So in average open rates, the personal treatment was the winner. It was 26.17% average open rate. Uh, the company was right behind at 25.21%. The industry open rate was behind at 20 so you had 20% versus 25 and 26. 
And that's material when you start looking at hundreds of opens or not opens. I would presume that the evidence of personalization, whether it was industry company or personal slash role, is in the subject line, that it can be seen in the subject line. Yes, in the first sentence as well. Yep. And so now you've opened and, and now the click-through rates. But what's interesting there is the highest open rate, personal, had 26%. It became the lowest click-through at 475 The second highest open, 25% company, dropped to 5%. And the industry click-through jumped to 6%. So now you saw a material difference between click-through rates. So the click-through rate for industry was 17% higher than company and 24% higher than personal. That's material, right? And click-throughs like at least another level of an interest and intent. And uh, now you have to scratch your head and go, okay, what happened there? The 6%, for example, on industry, is that 6% of the 20 or it's 6% of the overall total? Yes, yes. So it's 6% on the opens. I got it. Okay, perfect. As opposed to 6% of the total population. Makes sense to me. Perfect. Okay. You've got a, a disparity there. But then when you look at meetings scheduled, the number of meetings scheduled for the personal treatment at the end of this study was seven meetings scheduled. The number of meetings scheduled for company was seven meetings scheduled. The number of meetings scheduled for industry was 11. And so the math on that is like 50%. So we saw a 50% difference in meetings scheduled with the study that started with industry-driven personalization versus personal and company personalization. There's always the question of why. Why do you think industry outperformed? I guess we can do it individually. Why do you think industry outperformed, well, company and or the personal slash role? Well, we sort of started lumping them together if we think of sort of the emotions of the person opening it. So open rates were artificially high because we do believe that something just a little bit more personal gets something opened, but it quickly turns to skepticism. This is, you know, when you think about the psychology of the person reading it, they go, sort of, wait a minute, you're talking to me like you know me, but I don't know you, so you don't know me. Remember, these, this was cold ABM. And you're talking about what's going on in my company, but you're doing that from an external view of externally published information. I actually work here. I know what's going on. So it kind of turns real quickly to skepticism and the emotion you're really trying to evoke. And the one that seems to really show up here isn't skepticism, it's voyeurism. The idea that you don't know me, you don't know my company, and we don't know you. But it sounds like you work with other companies like me in the industry and you probably see more people in my industry that look like me than I do. So I'll give you that. And one of the things we've discovered is voyeurism is a very powerful tool. And people are always wondering. They know what they know, but they don't know what they don't know. They're wondering what others like them are doing. And so what we think is really at work here, if you think of it as skepticism versus voyeurism, and the idea of believing you because you work with these other companies versus believing you faking your efforts to try and know me. Some people get angry about promoting best practices because those best practices represent industry averages. But I, I mean, I have to say, I agree with you that people really, really want to know what even averages happen to be. I mean, obviously you want to know what's better than average, but knowing the averages alone is critical. We always then want to bump it up against the behavioral science that we study. So we're always triangulating neuroscience, social psychology, and behavioral economics 
because ultimately we believe that's what's at work here. So the numbers kind of tell a story, but you always want to know why. So that when you choose to try and accomplish and get similar results, knowing the why behind it makes you better than at crafting the better story, the better lead, the better copy, you know? So, you know, when you think of like why people like personas, it's like, I feel like I'm writing to a human, but I think the thing that personas always lack is it doesn't really identify why that human makes a decision the way they do. And the funny thing is that regardless of persona, humans make decisions the same way. So if you were like to ask me, well, is, is this uh, voyeuristic tendency true for all personas? I would be like, well, we sent to multiple different personas here. And so what we're seeing here is an aggregate score across all personas. There's a layer below personas that people are not taking advantage of. And the layer below the persona is this layer of... Behavioral science. Like, why are they doing it? How are they doing it? And recognizing that in reality, regardless of persona, all humans and their decision-making sort of functions the same. So I, I sometimes feel like we fragment things with personas and lose track of the things that really drive decision-making. I guess if we were to reflect back on some of the four shortcuts that you mentioned earlier in the way that people make decisions... Which one or ones do you think that this taps into? Here's the deal. There's some science called loss aversion that maybe your listeners have heard about that people are more likely to change in order to avoid a loss than they are to get a gain. And if you talk about what hidden things people in their industry are encountering and struggling with, you introduce that potential loss aversion as well as you destabilize their current preferences. So preference stability, if you tell them who they are and what their job is and what they're dealing with, that sort of just reinforces preference stability. If you tell them, here's what your company's up to and it's public knowledge, they're like, yeah, I already know that. And so you miss the opportunity, which you have to do rather quickly to sort of disrupt and destabilize their current preference and then show them there's a potential loss or cost of staying the same. So I would say these are, are two that get picked up very quickly, but you could argue that it's also anticipated regret and blame. If you start saying voyeuristically, here's what others in your industry are dealing with or wrestling with, the question is, am I falling behind? Am I encountering these same things? And now you don't want to be the one who misses out on that. So you could argue that the voyeuristic element touches on a number of these. What we've seen is people will be more willing to seek risk to mitigate a potential loss than to seek risk to get a gain. And when you are the outsider, especially like in a cold ABM environment, prospecting environment, you are the outsider. And so you are the risky bet. So what you need to do is get someone to be willing to seek risk. And they're more willing to seek risk to mitigate a loss than to accomplish a gain. And I think what happens in most companies is they lead a lot of their promotional content with the potential upside or gain of the solution and wonder why people don't care. And it's, it's because they don't care if your solution can perform if they don't even think they have a problem. I always talk about like ABM, when you're especially dealing with prospects, you're dealing with deniers. And so the first thing with deniers is they have to admit they have a problem before they go, oh my gosh, that ROI is really great. We've got some interesting new research coming out on how to gain executive access. What we discovered is in the opening email from a rep trying to get executive access, and in this case, we surveyed actual executives, VP or higher level titles, the worst performing email from a rep opened with, 
a case study sharing an ROI example of a company you've worked with. And here's what's ironic about that. I've seen lots of sales process that recommend that as the way to get an opening. And I'm here to tell you, psychologically, they're deniers and they're not ready to hear a proof point of your solution. What they really need is to hear and sort of persuade themselves they might actually have a problem worth solving. That finding is reinforced by some recent research I was reading that Chris Orlob, who I'm a big fanboy of and mentioned from time to time, people should definitely be following his content, had mentioned where in recorded meetings, basically, right, conversational intelligence, people who mention ROI early and often actually have significantly lower success rates than those who who hold off on that. So I think that completely reinforces that. You mentioned, since you gave a little spoiler, I guess, on executive access, what the single worst thing you can do is, what are some of the best things you can do? The other test conditions, it was hard to separate. Um, We did one test condition that was primarily driven by a wicked new industry insight, right? So sort of the provocative, unexpected, unconsidered need insight. Mm -hmm. And another one that was more of the benchmarking variety, as we have talked about here, was it benchmarking or was it more problem solution? Because I was actually curious about that comparison, the the sort of provocative insight that is really gain framing versus the, the problem solution, which is, I think, much more loss framing. The provocative insight, we always frame them as an unconsidered need or unexpected challenge, threat, problem that they didn't know about. So we were trying to test frankly, things that we've seen successful in the past and try to figure out one's the mo- which one's the most successful. So we used a little model on how to tell a provocative story. And so this industry insight one was based on that. And what it was, was we've discovered in working in your industry that most companies are overlooking and underestimating XYZ as a problem that must be solved in this instance. So that's what we meant by that. And the benchmarking one was we've worked with many companies in your industry. We have some results that we could run a benchmark of you against them. And we found that the insight-driven one and the benchmark-driven one were sort of statistically the same. It was a dead heat, but the ROI-driven one was a clear loser on every question we ask. And we asked like 17 questions in terms of the decision, the intensity of it, the urgency of it, willingness to take a meeting propensity to delegate the meeting and all that. And every one of those, we couldn't pick the winner, but we did know the loser. It will be stark and it will be uh, enlightening, I think, and it will confirm and reaffirm some of the things we've been talking about, as well as the stuff you mentioned that Chris has done. One of the things that's interesting to me is from a return on effort point of view, in some ways I'm heartened that the the benchmark approach, as well as the we've discovered this this overlooked problem that you have to solve in your industry, I'm hardened that those things are equal because the benchmarking piece, as much as I love it, is a much more costly way to engage versus sharing the industry insight that any reasonably competent salesperson will be able to execute on, right? Versus the benchmark where that involves some degree of heavy lifting. And even if the salespeople can get people to take the benchmark, you still need experts to interpret it for the customer. Well, and even to build it originally, right? So it was easy in a test to say we had a benchmark, really hard in real life to build a benchmark, right? To get enough data, meaningful data in an industry to run a benchmark and then all the machinations you have to go through to execute that in a sales cycle, I would agree. And that's 
I took a note on that, Jeremy, because we're writing up the results right now. And that's a great observation. While they were basically statistically tied, one is much easier than the other. I don't know if I'm ready to yet give up on benchmark-based uh, sales engagement, but you're beginning to convince me the more data that I see. Although things obviously go in waves, I guess. If benchmarking is common, then that'll go down. I, I think if industry problems are common, then that may go down. And these things just go kind of up and down in waves based on their scarcity, which I guess is yet another principle of influence and persuasion. I would say in both cases, voyeurism is still the key. So again, to bring it back to the science of what's going on, why does somebody care about a benchmark? They all want to know what, if there's something they're missing. And why is that industry insight where an unconsidered need is introduced provocative? Because, wow, I might be missing something that others have already figured out. And so that's why I always say everything comes back to the science of decision making. You could argue it homogenizes personas or it transcends personas. I tend to say sometimes personas create unsustainable amounts of content requirement for companies. And that if you maybe took the decision science angle, you could really streamline your content and get same, if not better results than uh, having to create six different story tracks for all of your content and campaigns. And I'll be honest, when salespeople get a hold of leads that are persona driven, they can't fragment and segment their brain enough to tell persona driven stories. Why? Because they're trying to drive, as we mentioned earlier, a consensus sale. They're not trying to tell six different stories. They're trying to bring six different people into one story. If people want to find the initial study and then know where to look for the executive access study, which I can't wait to chat about, what's the best way to find those and, and maybe learn a little bit more about you, learn a little bit more about your company? Yeah, so uh, the company is Corporate Visions, corporatevisions.com. And we have a research tab there, and uh, we give this all away. We have either ebooks or reports or research briefs, and you can search on these topics. Uh, the personalization one that we talked about is rolling and scrolling on our homepage right now, so you'll find that one pretty easily. You're going to want to look up another study that we did on um, you phrasing versus we phrasing. Interestingly, we found out if you just change one pronoun, stop using the word we in your messaging and change it to you. You can cause people to believe they're more personally responsible for the problem by 21% and that they feel strongly they must take action and do something about that problem by a factor of 13% more than if you use the word we. And so there's an ebook on, on that as well. So look for you versus we phrasing, look for personalization and sign up so that then you'll know when the executive access study comes out. The way we first got in touch is I'm a voracious reader of all things, fiction and nonfiction, but I not too long ago read Tim's excellent book, Conversations That Win the Complex Sale. So I would encourage folks to definitely check that one out. And I think he's got a, a few other books. Reister is spelled R-I-E-S-T-E-R-E-R. -E -E so if you want to hunt him down, that's, that's the way to hunt him down. Well, Tim, it was amazing having you on. Thank you for sharing the research and keep it coming. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.